Hi, my name is Alad Gross. Welcome to the Alad Pod, an online, uncensored town hall program designed to bring our government back to you. Every episode is a recording of our live show with special guests and questions asked by audience members like you. Today, I speak with Inez Bordeaux, the manager of community collaborations at Arch City Defenders and one of the lead organizers of the successful Close the Workhouse campaign. She shares her passion and her insights with us. I am great. How are you doing today? I am doing very well. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. I'm so excited. Um, The first time that we met in person, uh, I was totally fanning out for you. I don't know if you remember, but this was, I've seen you in person more than that, but it was at City Hall. And it was, uh, I think it was a press conference about the close of the workhouse campaign. And I had been following you for a long time, uh, especially the way that you talk about the needs that we have in our justice system and how to change it. And I just think the work that you have done and are doing is absolutely wonderful. So I'm very excited to have you on today. This is a, a special episode for me. Most important, it's my show, so I can do whatever I want. That's, the <laughs> That's goal. very nice of you yeah. to say. Yeah. So thank you for coming. Well, I, I want you to have you know an opportunity to introduce yourself to uh, folks who are watching. We have a lot of folks from all over Missouri. And in fact, I get some emails from people who are watching from abroad too. So uh, if you could introduce yourself, uh, what you do and why we've got you on the Alad Pod today. Well, my name is Inez Bordeaux. I am an organizer with the Close the Workhouse campaign. I'm also manager of community collaborations at Arch City Defenders. Um, I'm also a nurse. I have been a nurse for almost 15 years in the state of Missouri. I am a mother of four and, you know, I am just really, really, really interested in abolition work, the liberation of black folks, defunding the police and, you know, holding our elected officials accountable for the decisions that they make in our name. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much why I'm here to talk about all of those things. <laughs> however much time that we have to do that. Yeah, no, we, you know, oftentimes it does fly, but we do try to, you know, we try to give everybody space and time to ask questions. So, um, I mean, I think the conversation is the best part, right? Because we've had folks on of different perspectives or whatever it might be. And this is an opportunity for people to really interact and learn a whole lot about that. Um, could you tell, tell, tell us why, why is this work important to you? It's a very long story, but in the interest of time, I am going to keep it as short as possible. Um, I am a person that has been the victim of the criminal legal system here in Missouri. Um, Going back to 2009, I am a survivor of domestic violence. Um, My now ex-husband picked up a hot skillet off of a stove and he burned me all over my body with it. And I did what they say that you are supposed to do. I took my four kids who at the time were eight, six, a year and a half and six months. And I took them and I left. Um, but I couldn't afford my childcare. Once I left my husband, he, you know, refused to help take care of the kids financially at that time. And I just couldn't afford my daycare. It was $1,600 a month. I was working as, um, still a relatively new nurse at the time. I was making pretty decent money, about $18 an hour, which, you know, in 2009, it a very livable wage. But my daycare bill was $1,600 a month and I couldn't afford it. So like after going to the state multiple times and applying for assistance and being turned down three separate times because I made $57 too much. I want to repeat that. Mm -hmm. $57 
is how much money at too much that I made to be able to qualify for assistance. So like I made a very hard choice. I chose to do something illegal for a good reason. I um, lost two jobs because I didn't have reliable daycare. And after I got the third job, I was getting unemployment benefits. I continued to draw that those unemployment benefits. And that $350 a month that I was getting from the state was how I paid my daycare bill so that I could go to work. Um, <clears throat> at that time, my choices were, you know, to do this illegal thing for a good reason or go back to the man who picked up a hot skillet off of a stove and burned me all over my body with it. And so I chose to overdraw those over um, overdraw those unemployment benefits about a year and a half after um, I stopped drawing the unemployment benefits. People who have kids know that the older your kids get, the cheaper the daycare gets. So after about a year, the uh, kids got a little bit older, daycare got a little bit cheaper. I was able to stop doing it. About a year after that, I was driving home from a family reunion. I was in Oklahoma. I got pulled over for speeding, and I found out that I had a felony warrant for my arrest for larceny. Um, held in Oklahoma for 30 days, waiting to be extradited back to St. Louis. Got back to St. Louis, found out that I was being charged with unemployment benefits. And so that was in 2011. Um, I spent seven years like really being ground up inside of the criminal legal system here in Missouri. Um, I spent six years on probation, where at the end of my probation, because I was too poor to be able to pay my restitution back because I was then a felon, I Starting in 2012, I couldn't work under my nursing license. I couldn't find a job because I was a felon. And just everything, my whole life fell apart. Like, my whole life was ripped apart and, like, torn into little tiny shreds. Um, I spent three years homeless. My nursing license was suspended, like spent six years on probation, only to find out that the statute that was used to prosecute me for these stealing of unemployment benefits was ruled unconstitutional by the Missouri Supreme Court at the end of 2016. So in 2017, when my probation officer was trying to revoke my probation, um, and I found out a public defender, the same public defender who had gotten me out of the workhouse a year earlier for a probation violation, came to me and was like, hey, I think you qualify for this thing called a Basel motion. And he goes on to explain to me that the statute that I was prosecuted under, I should have never been charged with a felony. I should have only been charged with a misdemeanor um, and at the most would have had to do two years of probation. By the time I'm hearing all of this, I had already been on probation for six years. Um, so he helped, he told me to go down to his office, the public defender's office, fill out an application. I did. And the next month I was back in court getting my felony conviction basically vacated because I should have never, I never should have been charged with a felony. Um, so that's a very long answer to that's the reason why um, I'm doing this work, because I've seen the things that lead up to people ending up inside of the criminal justice system and how it just kind of destroys you from the inside and then will spit you out without mm -hmm. a care of how you, you know, pull your life back together after that. So... After all of that was over and my felony was vacated and I was once again a free woman, I like to say, like, my background check was once again a blank piece of paper. Um, I was really angry. I am still really, really angry. So when a, one of my friends and colleagues at Arch City Defenders 
MJ called me and said, hey, Arch City Defenders is starting this campaign to close the workhouse. Are you interested? I was like, hell yeah, I'm interested. Uh I had spent 30 days in the workhouse in 2016. So I got to see firsthand the things that people had been saying about the jail are true. I got to see like the rats and the roaches and the black mold that grows on the wall and got to experience like the toilets that don't flush and the showers that don't work and the correctional officers that treat you like gum on the bottom of their shoe. I got to experience all of those things firsthand. So between my time inside of the workhouse and just the horrific experience of being wrongfully prosecuted by the state. Like when I got the opportunity to do something about it, I, I was all in, I'm all in and here I am. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of folks wouldn't, you know, I've, I've, I've worked with, uh, quite a few people now who have been, uh, wronged, uh, had their constitutional rights violated, uh, specifically uh, given their time in the workhouse and some of the prosecutions involving there, um, and have brought some of those cases with them. Uh, but a lot of folks would rather just say, that happened, uh, I'm done, I'm glad that this is over, and I don't want to have to do anything with this again. Um, a lot of them are very angry. Uh, and rightfully so. Uh, but you, I mean, you took it, you took it to another, to the point where uh, you became an organizer um, behind a, a massive reform force in, in St. Louis. And I wonder, you know, how, what, I understand like the motivation behind it was your personal experience with it, but what do you think, what do you think made you and others that you've worked with made you step forward to say, no, we, we, we're done with this. For me personally, I am, I'm petty <laughs> and I, <laughs> I'm petty and I was not willing to just take this loss mm-hmm. or like, I just wasn't willing to do it. Um, it was really a couple of things for me personally. I like all of my goals and dreams and ambitions were really like taken away by the state before like all of this happened. Like I'm working as a nurse. I'm making pretty good money. A friend of mine and I, we were going to start a home health company. Mm. We had just like gotten the application in to be able to accept Medicare and Medicaid patients. And my goals were, I was going to open a home health company in St. Louis. And then I was going to open another one and another one and another one. And I was going to take over the city with my home health companies. And then after I was done, taking over the city, I was going to take over the state with my home health companies. And then after like, I was a well-respected businesswoman in the state, I was going to run for governor. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like the state of Missouri took that from me mm. and that I was already mad about that. And then to find out that I was never supposed to be charged with a felony ever. I should have only been charged with a misdemeanor. And because of a prosecutor who was running for reelection, who wanted to do this tough on crime thing, to find out later that she went after 12,000 people. 12,000 people were prosecuted under this statute Mm. and charged with felonies. And when I think about the fact that the Missouri Supreme Court came back and said, yes, this thing that you are doing is unconstitutional, and that put a stop to it, and I was able to get my sentence vacated, but 
less than a month after I got my sentence vacated, the Missouri Supreme Court came back and they said, this ruling is not going to be retroactive, mm. which for you know people who don't understand the legalese, it's they're saying that, yes, they understand that there was an, an injustice done, that there were 12,000 people who were negatively affected mm. by the actions of the former circuit attorney, but they weren't going to do anything to fix it, that it was too hard. They literally wrote in their decision that it was too hard to go back and find those 12,000 people and fix all of their cases to do for my case what they to go back and do for all of those other people what they did for my case. They said it was too hard. Mm -hmm. So there are literally 12,000 people walking around in and around the St. Louis area, in and around the Missouri, the state of Missouri, who have felony convictions, who should not have felony convictions. How many of those people are still on probation for those things? How many of those people are in prison or jail behind those things? And so, like, that enraged me. Mm-hmm. That enraged me. I was one of maybe a hundred people who was able to get my my felony vacated. A hundred people out of twelve thousand. So when I got the opportunity to like get involved in I don't want to say reforming the criminal justice system because I don't believe it can be reformed. But when I got the opportunity to get involved with the Close to Workhouse campaign, to get involved with criminal justice work, I leaped at the opportunity. Yeah. So tell us um, what what that looked like. So you're you're now involved with the Close the Workhouse campaign. Um, what what exactly? I guess what what was your role, but what was the the overall strategy behind you know trying to get this jail, which is a, a very notorious one and, and quite well known, especially in the St. Louis area, but uh, a bit nationally too, uh, for its uh, uh, not great reputation at all. But what what did that look like on your part, and what did that look like from the organizing structure as a whole? What was what was the I guess the strategy there in order to try to get that thing closed? Um, well, for me, it was MJ calling me from Arch City Defenders and saying, do you want to get involved in this campaign? And I'm like, yes. And he told me where that first meeting was. And I showed up at that first meeting and I told my stories and I met dozens of other people who had been who've been impacted by the racist policies that allow the workhouse to exist in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And so I showed up to the first meeting and I just kept showing up to meetings. And after about a year, I was asked to be on the organizing team. Um, And so I joined other organizers, Montega Simmons, Brittany Farrell, Michelle Higgins, Devin Thomas, Rodney Brown, who were already like doing the work around the campaign. I was able to join with them and like continue to learn. Um, And after about a year of being on the organizing team, Arch City Defenders created this position, Manager of Community Collaborations, which is really just a very fancy title for organizer. (laughs) Um, And so, like... I was offered the position by Blake and I was working as a nurse at the time. So like I immediately quit my nursing job and I took this job at Arch City Defenders because honestly, before all the work that I was doing with the Close the Workhouse campaign was on a volunteer basis. I was doing it in my Mm. spare time on weekends and after I got off work and things like that. So taking this job at Arch City Defenders really just gave me the opportunity to get paid for doing the work that I was already doing, but on a, on a much larger scale. Mm -hmm. Um, and then as far as the campaign, it's really rooted around it, especially in the beginning, it was rooted around, um, these ideals of closing the workhouse and not opening another jail, mm-hmm. ending cash bail, and this idea of what we call re-envisioning public safety. Um, 
closing the workhouse and not opening another jail is just, we are a small city. I know St. Louis feels very big sometimes, uh-huh. but it's a small city. Only about 300,000 people. We don't need two jails. Having two jails just gives the city an opportunity to try to lock up as many people as possible, which is the opposite approach of what they should be taking. Ending cash bail. Cash bail, the unconstitutional practice of not providing people the bail hearings that they are supposed to have within 48 hours, as the rules say. Not giving people, not assigning people bails that they can afford. The Constitution says that when you are charged with a crime, you are supposed to be given the least restrictive means to Mm -hmm. ensure that you come back to court. And I think uh, between the years and years of propaganda shows that we have all watched and maybe loved, we have all been kind of brainwashed to believe that if you are in jail, you deserve it. You must have done something wrong. And that bail is about safety, community safety. Like if you're a danger to the community, that's what bail is. And that's not what it is at all. Bail is really just supposed to be about making sure that you come back to court. It has nothing to do with how safe you are or the crime that you've committed. It's about, I'm going to assign this cash bail amount so that you have some skin in the game and you will come back to court. And that idea has really been bastardized into this criminalization of poverty. That's what it is. Because if you are rich, if you commit a crime, a crime, and you can afford the $10,000 bail, then you can get back out. But if you are poor and you can't afford your bail, then you're left to languish in jail, which causes all kinds of other problems. After three days, you've probably lost your job. After a month, you've probably lost your home. Where are your children at? Did your car get towed? Will you be out of jail in enough time to be able to get your car back out? Because the city charges like $125 a day storage fees. So it's just like a compounding problem that cash bail inflicts on mostly black, mostly poor people. And then lastly, this idea of re-envisioning public safety. Re-envisioning public safety just means taking money away from the carceral state, taking money away from police and jails and investing them into the things that actually make us safe. The police do not make us safer. Jails do not make us safer. You know what makes us safe? The things that prevent crime in the first place. The things that prevent poverty in the first place. Um, I'm a nurse. I let. I, this is an analogy I use all the time. Like if you tell me that you have a fever, I'm going to give you Tylenol, and Tylenol is going to break your fever for about four hours. After four hours, if your fever comes back, then I know the problem isn't just some one-off fever. I know that you have an infection. And I can do one of two things. I can give you some more Tylenol, which is going to knock your fever down again, but it's only going to be temporary. And I can keep doing that. I can just keep giving you Tylenol. Your fever will go away and then it will come back. It will go away and then it will come back. Or I can deal with the root cause of the fever. The fever is strictly a symptom of an underlying problem. If I treat the infection, I won't ever have to worry about the fever again because I dealt with the underlying problem. The underlying problem in this situation here in St. Louis is poverty. If we want to get rid of the crime and the violence, we have to address the poverty because it doesn't matter how many police you put on the street. And I know because we spend $236 million on the police every single year. It doesn't matter how many jails you build. We currently have two, one of which is budgeted for $8.8 million, or excuse me, $7.6 million this year. The other one gets $25 million a year. So it doesn't matter how many police you put on the street. It doesn't matter how many jails you build. Because if you're not dealing with the root cause of of the poverty, none of that stuff matters because people are going to have 
People are going to do what they have to do to survive. And I'm a living testament of that. I overdrew those unemployment benefits. I knew it was illegal to do it. But I was in survival mode. So I made a decision in order to survive. And that's what people are out here doing every single day. So re-envisioning public safety just means let's take some of this money away from the police who aren't making us safer. They aren't. Our crime rates are way up here in St. Louis. If, if the police actually made us safe, we would be the safest city in America right now with the amount of, but of our money. 56% of our general fund budget goes to the police. So based on that logic, we should be the safest city in, the, in America, and we're not. Mm. We have two jails in this city. We should be the safest city in America, but we're not. And that's because police and jails don't make us safe. So let's take away some of that money and invest it in the things that do make us safe. You know what makes us safe? For me, what would have made me safe is having resources for survivors mm -hmm. of domestic violence. Having affordable child care would have made me safe. Having affordable housing makes us safe. People having access to health care and mental health services makes us safe. People having access to food and resources and solid education that prepares us for the jobs of the future. Those are the things that make us safe. So when the Close the Workhouse campaign started, those were really the things that mm -hmm. we focused on. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting topic. Uh, and it's one that has come up obviously a lot right now, but it's actually come up on a lot of the episodes that we've had here with folks from different perspectives on the topic, uh, specifically with the headline, defund the police, right? And uh, you're using the term about re-envisioning uh, what, what the system looks like. And, and something that really, uh, you, you change the language that I use because I often use the terms, you know, justice reform. And every once in a while I still slip up, but I still do it. But when you said, it's not, it's not about reforming it, it's about building a true justice system and really seeing what that means and then building it from that point because there are so many places within the justice system and the way that it's set up right now where uh, it's not set up to provide true justice. And that's to, to folks who are in the system who are accused, to folks who are victims of crimes. To, I mean, so many places where it's dropped along the way. Um, you know, I, so, you know, the, the pushback on specifically uh, with, the, with the funding issue is that a lot of folks, uh, especially those who are uh, maybe elected to office right now uh, or would like to be, or, you know, people who uh, are, are in the system and, and a lot of folks who are, are seeing violence around them in their community and in really neighborhoods that aren't very stable as a result of that are saying, um, hey, uh, we need more funding. So I know we're giving a whole lot of money to policing right now, but, but there needs to be more. We need to have more of it because we have some areas we have lost control to the point where, you know, gun violence is happening a whole lot, especially in, in St. Louis City, but also in many parts of our state that a lot of current politicians like to ignore. Uh, rural Missouri is one of the most violent rural areas in the country, according to FBI statistics. A lot of cities are seeing spikes in crime, given the policies that we put out there. So I wonder, you know, for folks who are saying, well, actually, I think that we need more because of my experience that I'm seeing in my neighborhood or with my kids or I've lost a loved one. Um, what, do you, what do you tell folks in those situations who, who, who really do think that we need more uh, on the security end versus the social services end? I, like, I totally understand why not just in St. Louis or in Missouri, but really all across the country, why people feel like, oh, well, crime is spiking, violent crime is spiking, you know, all of these things. We need more police, not less police. I would ask them to think about what do the police do? What do they do? Like, really think about it. What do the police do? Do they prevent crime? If they prevented crime, 
we wouldn't see spikes in crime, right? Do they solve crime? Here in St. Louis, I think the clearance rate is less than 30%. So the police are not preventing crime and they're not solving crime. So what are they doing? What are they doing? No, that's a real question. What are they doing? Because we don't know. If you're not solving crime and you're not preventing crime, what are you doing? So we know that about 4% of the time, let's round it up to 5%, just to make it a nice round number. So 5% of the time, the police are dealing with violent crime. What are they doing with the other 95% of their time? I can tell you what they're doing with the other 95% of their time is pulling people over for traffic tickets, traffic violations, expired plates, temp tags, no temp tags, speeding, those kind of things. And then the rest of the time, they are responding to calls that they are not qualified or trained to deal with. So those same people, after you get done thinking about what do the police actually do, I want you to consider this. If your house is on fire and you call 911, who shows up? The fire department shows up, right? Because those are the people who are qualified to deal with the problem that you are currently experiencing. You know who doesn't show up? A police officer with a badge and a gun. If you are having a heart attack and you call 911, do you know who shows up? An EMT. A couple of them. Maybe even the fire department because they also have medical training. EMTs show show up. People who are specifically trained to deal with the problem that you are experiencing. So if you are dear, if you a person who lives in a neighborhood that is experiencing violence and crime, and again, I already said, in order to deal with the violence and the crime, you have to deal with the poverty. So what if we took half of the police budget and we gave it to people? who actually know and are specifically trained to deal with the issues that are affecting your neighborhood. We brought Cure Violence with Cap Cars work, help and all of their hard work. They brought Cure Violence to St. Louis. What was that, last summer? Mm-hmm, yep. Last summer. Yeah, that's right. The Cure Violence program still hasn't been implemented in St. Louis City. Right. That is how we deal with violence and crime. That's the first step. You know what I'm saying? Bringing in professionals who actually know how to deal with the problems that we're experiencing. You know who doesn't know how to deal with violence and crime? Police. Because if they did, they would be doing it already. They get 56% of our budget. How much more do they need? Do they want 60% of the budget, 70%? How much more would it take for them to get their clearance levels over 30%? How much more would it take for them to prevent crime? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So this is the way we're currently doing it is not sustainable. Not only is it not sustainable, it's ineffective. It is not working. So the definition of insanity is to do this is doing the same thing over and 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 expecting a different result. So under this umbrella of re-envisioning public safety, and depending on what city you go mm-hmm. to, they might call it something a little bit different, but it's all the same. The vast majority of city budgets go to police, and yet our crime rates are still high. The violence rates are still high. The gun violence that mostly black commu- uh, mostly black and other marginalized communities are experiencing 
is related to the poverty. We have to deal with that or nothing will change. You could feel you could have hire 1200 more police and it wouldn't change. You could build three more jails and it wouldn't and it wouldn't change. If we don't deal with those issues, we're never nothing's ever going to change. So for those people that are worried who have those concerns which are valid concerns, I completely understand. But we we need to think bigger. We need to think bigger. Like the police and jails are not the answer. Those are failed systems that fail every single day and they've been failing for decades and decades and decades. It doesn't work. So it's time for us to try something else. Let's try something else. The money's right there. Let's just do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's what we're doing with the Close the Workhouse campaign. We got that $16 million um, that we are going to have starting next fiscal year to invest in black people, black communities, poor communities, to specifically help with those communities that exist in the margins. This is how we make St. Louis better. This is how we make St. Louis safer for all of us. Mm-hmm. For, for And so for folks who are a little bit less familiar, a um, couple things, so I'll cover that. But the, uh, the workhouse... The budget that was allocated there was $16 million, um, and now uh, thanks to your hard work and your team's hard work and so many other folks um, around the city, um, even outside the city who are interested in, in, in seeing change, um, the, the workhouse is slated to be closed at the end of the year. And, and so now now I, I suppose the work that you all are doing is still ongoing. It's about how those resources are going to be allocated moving, moving forward, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, with the passage of Board Bill 92, which was unanimously voted on, think of the last time anything was unanimously right. voted on <laughs> by right. the Board of Aldermen in St. Louis. So we got a unanimous 28 to 0 vote um, in support of closing the workhouse. So it will be closed by December 31st of this year. Um, we don't think it should take that long because there's only 80 people in the workhouse today. 80, When this campaign started two and a half years ago, there was about 550 people inside of the workhouse. So between the work that the circuit attorney has done to um, decriminalize, uh, like decriminalizing marijuana, not prosecuting crimes of poverty, things like that, um, some minor changes in the way bail is being done in in the city and the bail project um, here in St. Louis, just bailing, they've bailed 3,000 people out of jail in the last three years. So they have literally been emptying the jails out, which is exactly how we got here. Because there is no, um, our elected officials can't rationalize spending $16 million every year on a jail that has consistently had less than 100 people in it for almost well over six months at this point. Um, so with the closing, with the passage of board bill 92, the closing of the jail, um, they had, uh, the city had already reduced the budget down from 16 million to $7.6 million for this fiscal year. Um, so starting next fiscal year, because of the passage of that board bill, we'll have that whole $16 million to work with. And through, the next steps of the Close the Workhouse campaign, which is the participatory budgeting part. Um, one of our demands right from the beginning was we wanted the jail closed and we wanted the people affected by the policies that created the workhouse to be the ones to decide how that money gets spent. So through this participatory budgeting process, all of those impacted people, all of the poor people, all of the black and brown people that have been historically neglected by this city and um, 
suffering under the neglect and the abuse of being inside of the workhouse and the policies that the city has created um, that have left many communities decimated. We want those people to decide mm. what happens with this $16 million, because the people closest to the problem often have the answers to the problem. The people inside of those communities can tell you exactly what they need and they should have the say so. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, that's great. And I've, I do have a few questions that have come in. Um, sure. but before that, uh, cause you mentioned cure violence too. Uh, and we have actually talked a bit about this, uh, on, uh, previous episodes, but, um, in in, uh, in in St. Louis specifically, and it's also in Kansas City, actually, it's called the Aim for Peace program over there. Uh, but there are uh, Cure Violence is one of those prevention programs. So you hire community mediators, folks who live there. It's also a jobs program to try to prevent violence before it happens. And I think we had um, one of the episodes we had on was with Thomas Apt, who used to work uh, for the Obama administration and does a lot of violence prevention work. And he's uh, a bit more uh, uh, about how that interacts with policing and prosecuting as well. Uh, we talked a lot about those programs uh, before. And, yeah, we've, we've spent a lot of money or we've allocated a lot of money for that in St. Louis. We haven't quite seen it implemented. I'm sure COVID was probably part of the reason why there's some slowdown there. But, um, you know, it's an, it's an opportunity that is there that hopefully we will see some, some returns on soon. So that's called Cure Violence. And then I think it was just this past week the governor – uh, allocated uh, $1 million for uh, another type of program. And in cities where they have had more than one group come in, um, and I'm thinking of Los Angeles and Oakland and a few others, uh, where they have had more than one type of cure violence type of program come in, they've seen positive effects because somebody might do it a little bit differently. They learn from each other, and it's a good working environment that you can see there. So that's something that is coming with a uh, pretty significant budget in the St. Louis area, and, and that was in response uh, to a lot of advocating there as well. Um, one of the questions, um, I got this from Ellen. Uh, Ellen asked, and this was via text, otherwise I'd put it up on the screen, but we've got a few there. Uh, how can the average citizen who's listening right now um, and listening to these issues and really looking at, at the root causes of this help uh, in the fight against Poverty. I mean, specifically in St. Louis, I guess with your your experiences here, but just I mean, maybe even more generally, uh, how can folks get involved to really deal with the root causes of of the violence that we are seeing? Our elected officials here in I'm I'm not super sure how politics work in St. Louis County, so you have to forgive me. Okay. But in St. Louis City, I don't think they know the either. So it's okay. <laughs> In St. Louis City, the Board of Aldermen hold the purse strings to what gets funded and allocated. They have the say-so. So if you are wanting to know like what you as an ordinary citizen can do to have an impact on the poverty, find out who your older person is. You can call, you can go on the city. If you don't know, go on the city website. It's St. Louis St. Louis mo.gov. You scroll down halfway down that first page. There is a box where you can put your address in and it will tell you every single elected official that you have for the area that you live in. And then um, close the workhouse. We did what we call like a checklist, like call the mayor, mm -hmm. call public safety director, Jimmy Edwards, call your alder, and then email Lida, email Jimmy, email your alder every single day. Like it's literally how I spend the first 20 minutes of every morning emailing my alder, getting in touch with Jimmy Edwards 
calling the mayor and making your concerns heard. Like, and they're clocking those. They are keeping tabs on all the emails, all the phone calls, all the tweets, all the texts, all of those things. You need to harass your elected officials, especially the board of aldermen. They hold the purse strings. They can decide to take some of that money away from the police and invest it in the things that need to be invested in. We have to hold our elected officials accountable for the decisions that they are making in our names. And that's how that's part of how you do that. I know in the times of COVID, you know, we're social distancing and wearing masks and not gathering in groups and things like that. When it becomes safe again, or if you if you are health wise safety, when we have these rallies and protests show up like your elected officials are paying, they're paying attention, they're noticing. And that's what we did with the Close the Workhouse campaign. We made the pressure so unrelenting that older people who have been telling us for years that they did not support the Close the Workhouse campaign voted to close the workhouse camp, uh, voted for that bill to close the workhouse because they knew what was going to happen if they didn't. They knew that we would not stop calling. We would not stop tweeting, that we would show up and we would protest and have dance parties outside of their house, that we would occupy City Hall. Mm -hmm. We would paint defund the police in the middle of the street. Like they knew that if they did not do the things that their constituents demanded of them, that they were going to have to answer for that. And also half of the board of aldermen is up for reelection in about six months. What is it? April of 2021. Mm -hmm. All the odd wards are up for election. So if your elected official is not listening to the cries of the people of what their constituents are demanding, then get new elected officials. Yeah. Yeah. Accountability is a very big piece. And when you talk about organizing and finding those folks who can make the change that you're looking for, uh, that's, that's how you start. And then you got to figure yeah. out how to get to them. Um, and yeah, organize your neighbors, yes. organize your PTA, your PTA groups, organize your kids soccer team. Tell them, hey, do you know that we spend 56 percent of the city budget on the police and jails? Well, why aren't the crime rates better? Why is there so much violence? Why is this? Why is that? Because we're giving all of our money away. We're giving all of our money away to an organization that does that is ineffective. The police are ineffective. So it's just time to do something. It's time to do something else. Organize, organize, organize. Your book club, your church group, organize, organize, organize. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's something that you said very early on in this. Um, you showed up. You showed up to a meeting. And, you know, that's how it, it really started. Somebody asked you to do something. You're like, ah, you know, I'll come to this thing. And, you know, I think so many folks who have been on uh, here that we've talked to about getting started in organizing or getting started in a career or whatever it might be that brought them to this point um, is because they just showed up to something and they didn't really expect it to go, you know, super far. But uh, there it is. And, and here we all are. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, when – I mean, there's a lot, and there's a lot of, when you talk about organized, you know, there's a lot of great organizations that are out there uh, doing very important work. I know, you know, I help a lot of kids and have been doing that for a long time who are in need of resources or whatever it might be. Um, so, you know, if you're looking to get involved, there's, there's a lot of great places to do that. Uh, Poverty is a very big issue. It's, it's one that uh, <laughs> we, we really haven't focused as much on as we need to in this country, which is why we're where we are and why there's a lot of a, really a lack of legitimacy in a lot of the public institutions that we have. And I think Missouri is, is certainly an example of that because we haven't invested in people. Uh, we've invested in um, sometimes in institutions. A lot of times we haven't. Um, you know, that's why you kind of get some divergent opinions about how to fix these problems now, because who really knows? Cause we haven't really been doing a great job either way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, 
so much of this does come back to the political system and those folks who are elected to make these decisions and who do have this collective power that we have given them to try to fix these problems. And uh, uh, accountability sure seems like it's missing in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's something you said at the beginning, and it's something that came up here at the end, so I just wanted to highlight that because I like when that happens sometimes. So, uh, You have a relative, uh, Marquia. Yeah, she's my little sister. Your little sister is on here, and she's got a question. First, she says she's so proud of you. <laughs> I'm going to put that up on the screen because you deserve that. You've earned that. It's on the screen. I'm literally going to be like, how did you know my sister's name? <laughs> I know. I do a lot of research for these shows, okay? I do I do a whole lot. But she's got That's a question. Deep research. That is deep, very deep, deep. Very deep. Yeah, we go. I go really. It comes on my screen just automatically. We've got great system. Uh she asks, what advice can you give to activists in their communities that are feeling burned out from the continuous work, and how do you personally keep going? Um, anger mm. is how I keep going. I think when I first started talking, I talked about how angry I was mm. about being chewed up inside of this system and everything that... You know, the state of Missouri took from me. Um, angry gets shit done. It just does. Yeah. And anger is a renewable energy source. So when I feel myself getting tired, when I feel like, oh, I really don't want to, you know, watch this webinar on abolition or I really don't feel like putting on my shoes and going out into the streets or I don't feel like calling, you know, Mayor Lyda Cruson for the fourth time today. Like, I just remember every single thing that was taken from that was taken from me. Like, I remember that I spent three years homeless. I remember that I had to send my kids away to stay with their dad for three years. I remember that in a three-year period, I applied for over 2,000 jobs and could not get hired anywhere. I remember that $57, I made $57 too much. And that is what put me in a situation to lose seven years of my life. Mm. Like, I get angry all over again. I think about Mike Brown laying in the street for four hours. I think about, you know, Trayvon Martin. And I think about Sandra Bland. And I think about Eric Gardner. And I think about Rakia Boyd. And I think about, like all of these injustices that are happening and I get angry all over again. And it makes me tie my shoes a little faster, mm. grab my keys a little faster and I'll, I'll sleep when I get back home. But right now there is work to do. And if you are looking around and you're not angry, you are not paying attention. And so all you have to do is look around, get mad, use that anger Use it to get involved. Use it to do something. Um, that might not be a super great answer, but it is literally what gets me out of bed every single day. Because of what the state took from me, like right now, I should be getting ready to run for governor, you know, after Nicole, after she gets her, you know, after she does her two or seven terms or whatever. Like I should be doing focus groups right now, figuring out like, can a black woman be governor that has a nose piercing and a lip piercing? You know what I'm saying? I'm supposed to be doing all of these things, but instead I'm having to be out in the streets protesting about a jail that preys on black people, on poor people, that forces people to live in conditions where in a facility that's infested with rats and roaches. And I remember all of the times I couldn't take a shower when I was inside of the workhouse. I remember being homeless and being turned away and all of these things. Like I remember all of those things and it just, it gets me out of the bed every single time. The state of Missouri could have left me alone. 
they could have left me alone, but they didn't. And so now every single day when I get out of bed, I try to think of how, what can I do today that is going to make the state of Missouri rue the day that they ever saw my name on a charging document and decided to come after me every single day. And I get out of the bed every single day in a good mood thinking, (laughs) what am I going to do to mess up white supremacy and racism today? But instead of saying mess up, I say the F word. (laughs) (laughs) Family friendly show. So thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) You already let me get my one. I did. I let you in. You get one. You get one. (laughs) No, this was, uh, no, thank you. And I, 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 you know, I, so I've been working with kids for a long time and a lot of folks have asked, you know, the same question to me about why do you keep doing this? You must be crazy. You're spending all this time doing it. And I mean, honestly, when you see, especially when you have like third graders who are telling you, what is the point of me doing homework? What is the point of me learning anymore? Cause what does it matter? Um, it's, it's hard not to get angry about that. And it's hard to see that, because, I mean, you know, you've got two choices. One is you just see that and you're like, well, all right, and just move on and say that's that's too bad for that kid, too bad for other kids, and I've got my life over here. And the other one is to say that that should not exist uh, where we live. And, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of folks who are there on the margin. And what's nice about uh, the work that great organizers do is that they get folks from that margin into that fight. And the more folks that we can get there – um, the more, the, the greater the chance is for us to make change. And that change is so necessary on so many different levels. So, um, thank you. Thank you for, uh, coming on. I, you know, I want to give you a chance cause we've got a couple minutes left, but, uh, is there anything that you, some life lessons that you would like to leave, uh, the people of Missouri with the folks who are watching anything that you would like to, any closing thoughts that you have? Um, yeah, like, We, this life that we are living, it does not have to be this way. We do not have to accept this status quo. We don't have to accept this fatal state violence from the police. We don't have to accept the poverty. We don't have to accept our elected officials not taking our demands seriously. We don't have to accept any of this. We don't have to live in a city where the police gets 56% of our budget, where jails account for 35, $40 million of our budget. We don't have to live like this. We can make a difference. If nothing else will prove to you that we can do this, that we can literally build the world that we want to live in, look at the Close the Workhouse campaign. Mm -hmm. We closed a jail. Who else is out here closing jails? And it wasn't me. I didn't do it. It wasn't Blake or Kayla or Jay or Madison. Like, we helped. But it was the people of this city who said, no more. We don't have to do this. And we organized. And we rallied. And we protested. And we had caravans. And we showed up to Board of Aldermen meetings. And we showed up at the mayor's house. And we showed up at City Hall. We did all of these things. And it only took us two and a half years. We closed a jail in two and a half years. In St. Louis City, you can't even get a traffic study for a speed bump in two and a half years. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. We can literally build the world that we want to live in. If we don't want the police to get our budget, our, our tax dollars anymore, They don't have to. If we want to close the jail, we can do that. If we want to hold our elected officials accountable, we can do that. If we want to make racial racial justice a reality for all people living here, we can do that. If we want to get rid of poverty and homelessness and violence, we can do it. Look at what we just did. We just closed a jail. We just closed a jail. This is only the beginning of what we can do if we take this same model that we used with Close the Workhouse. When we all stand together and we speak with one voice and we show up and we show out, we can change. 
not just our neighborhoods, but our city. We can change our state. Like there are way more of us than there are of them. And we need to remember that. There are more of us than there are of them. And when we band together and speak with one voice, we can make the impossible happen. I remember almost three years ago when this campaign started, people laughed, like outright laughed, like belly laughed when we said we were closing the workhouse. The workhouse has been around since 1853. People have been trying to close it since 1854. Mm. People laughed three years ago when we said we were closing this jail. Elected officials wouldn't even meet with us when we said we were closing this jail. And look at us. We closed a jail. So keep the Close the Workhouse campaign close to your heart, the work that we have done close to your heart, Mm -hmm. because it is the blueprint for every single thing that we want to do. And we hope that it is a model for every city that has a hellhole jail that they want to close and for the participatory budgeting process and for defunding the police, we can build the world that we want to live in. All we have to do is get up and do it. So let's get up and do it. (laughs) Inez Bordeaux. Thank you so much for coming on the allowed pod. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, this was great. Thanks for joining us on the Alad Pod. You can participate in future town halls and see all of our past ones at aladgross.live. You can reach me there too, and I'd love to hear your ideas. For now, this is Alad Gross, and I'll see you on the next Alad Pod.